The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The ultimate sign of failure is that when he died, you know, a third of his country was occupied by a foreign force. That was Sean McGlynn on the French invasion of England in 1216. It's very useful to do a history of the world in order to reflect on this because you're then reminded of what shorter period the North American European predominance really is in terms of world history as a whole. It's a relatively brief period of time. And that was Arna Westad on writing world history. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, Kindle, Kindle Fire and Google Play. For details of our digital formats, including price, content and availability, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. In May 1216, Prince Louis of France, the heir to the French throne, arrived at the Isle of Thanet looking to seize the crown from England's much maligned monarch, King John. Our section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, caught up with Sean McGlynn to discover why this invasion is so often overlooked and finds out more about one of England's most hated monarchs. King John is probably one of England's most controversial monarchs, but how did he, as a youngest son, come to the throne in the first place? Uh, well, he was the youngest of four sons of Henry II. In fact, there was a fifth who, who died uh, much younger. Count Geoffrey of Brittany and Henry the Young King uh, died, one in a tournament, okay. or in a, in a tournament, and the other of uh, illness, probably dysentery. Uh, so that left Richard the Lionheart as king. Richard the Lionheart did not have any children, mm-hmm. so it fell to the, the youngest of the line, John, to become king. So there was, there was little dispute over him being accepted as king in England. It's more in France and Brittany where uh, yeah. Arthur of Brittany, Geoffrey's son, was deemed to be um, the heir to the throne. Which leads me to my next question, actually, which, which was sort of within three years of him coming to the throne. Um, he's, he didn't start too well because he was 
accused of the the death of his um, 15-year-old nephew, um, who just mentioned Arthur of Brittany. Um, What would he have actually gained for murdering um, Arthur? And do you think he actually orchestrated this? Um, What he would have gained, he would have taken away from Philip II of France, Philip Philip Augustus, who Mm. was John's keen enemy, a key ally of of, uh, the King of France, who was using... Arthur to cause um, disloyalty amongst uh, John's subjects. Um, so he had that to gain. Um, he didn't have a lot to gain up from killing him in the way he did mm. because it backfired. He may have thought he was getting rid of an opponent, just like um, th- this was really a forerunner of the princes in the tower yeah, with Richard III. It really was. Um, nobody, uh, we know what actually happened. Did he orchestrate it? Almost certainly. Um, again, we have no hard and fast evidence, but he was when Arthur was t- captured, he was put in um, prison at Rouen, and there's all kinds of conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theories and ideas what happened to him. One is that um, Arthur was actually castrated so that he wouldn't be able to have any issue to have further contenders oh, for wow. the, like, the throne, and that he, Arthur died from the shock. Another less likely one is that John rode him out into the middle of the River Seine and then killed him. Um, right. I don't think John had the strength or the courage to have done that. Right. But the, the one that a lot of people favour, historians favour, is that in a, junk, in a drunken rage, John just went down to the cell and, and killed him and disposed of him like that. But it's very, very interesting. Um, years later, John mistreats one of his leading barons, William de Brose, and his family. Um, he has a charge that... William owes him money. Mm. William does a runner. His wife and child are taken into John's custody in Corfe Castle and are starved to death. And there's lurid tales of the mother being found in the son's lap, gnawing at her son's cheek for food. But the thing is, William de Braze was with John at the time of Arthur's disappearance. And it's believed that Arthur knew where the bodies were buried, as it were. So that when John went to... William and his wife. His wife said, we're not going to give you our son as a hostage because we know what happened to Arthur. Um, so it's almost as if John was trying to get rid of anybody connected with, yeah. with the, um, the, the death of Arthur. So the combination of the death of Arthur and then mistreating one of the most powerful barons in the reign were two really serious mistakes in John's reign, which put a lot of people against him. So, so what was John doing in France at the time of that? Because you said he was actually in France when his, his nephew was killed. This was before he lost Normandy, the, the Duchy of Normandy. Mm. So there's warfare going on. He'd actually just won a great victory at Mirebeau in 1202. Uh, and it was a tremendous victory, probably the most important English victory at that time before Cressy in many ways. Uh, but when John had success, he blew it. He, <laughs> you know, he always did the wrong thing afterwards. He couldn't consolidate it. So he mistreated his prisoners yeah. so that when the French invaded Normandy, the relatives of those prisoners in Normandy went over to Philip. Um, and then he, uh, he, um, he killed, almost certainly killed Arthur. And, and how... What were reactions to this at the time? Did people believe that he had actually done this? Well, he, he certainly made a, uh, an um, implacable enemy of the Bretons mm. uh, because, you know, he had killed their, their lord. And indeed, you know, he was nobility. Yeah. So for that to happen was serious. And, and it upset a lot of people in England. Maybe they weren't that worried about Arthur himself, but the, the thought at the back of their minds is, if he can do this to such a powerful figure... Mm. What else could uh, he do? Yeah, exactly, mm. what will he do to us? 
Um, he's famously been given the, the nickname at the time of, of John Softsword. Can you kind of just explain what, how that came about and what it actually means? Yeah, sure. This is um, from the Latin Molly Glodi- Gladium, Molly Gladium, Softsword. Um, this came about after the signing of a treaty in, with France in 1200. John had just come to power and he signed this peace treaty with France. Um, and he actually paid um, over a large sum of money as part of the treaty to the King of France. And people started speaking of him quite disparagingly as soft sword, you know, not want, you know, scared of war, wanting to uh, find peace. One or two chroniclers liked the fact that he had opted for peace rather than for war and said that actually soft sword should be considered, you know, uh, uh, not, not a, a derogatory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it stuck with him. And as he went to go on and lose things, you know, as he did all the time, <laughs> yeah. it really becomes a, a very good nickname for him. And why did England's barons choose to revolt against John in 1215? And what sort of support did they have? Because not only did he have problems in France initially, he then kind of had a sort of civil war going on in in England as well. Uh, Yes, well, there's all kinds of reasons um, given for the barons revolting. One of the reasons is that because John kept losing his wars, he kept needing money Mm. to try and regain the lands in France. So he was taxing very heavily and very, very arbitrarily. And a lot of the barons were in debt to the crown, so they didn't like that. That was one thing. Another thing was they just simply didn't like to see good money go, being thrown after bad. You know, any money to support John in war was going to be lost. Yeah. Um, never succeeded. But also there's the whole level, level of arbitrary government, almost like a dictatorship. No one knew where they stood with John. Um, he would sell justice um, to, to the highest bidder and things like that. Yeah. But also there's a personal side of him, apart from being despotic and tyrannical, um, there are rumours which are probably fairly justified that he was uh, rather free and easy with some of the barons' wives and daughters. Right. Um, so it, it's a huge insult. Yeah. Now, again, some historians think, well, that's probably exaggerated to try and get people to support the rebellion against him. But if you're a great lord, to admit that you've, you know, you've, you, your wife has been... Uh, raped or, or yeah. your daughter being assaulted by John is you know, it's a, it's a terrible thing to admit. So there's probably a lot of truth in that. So he just alienated everybody. He had minimal uh, man, manpower skills, management yeah. skills, you know. So he doesn't have very good people skills no, either exactly. by the sounds yeah, of it. Ter- terrible skills. For, and, uh, and of course, as a king, you need that for patronage, for, mm. you know, soft talking of barons and everything. But people didn't know where they stood with him. Waste of money, um, poor, you know, relations with the barons and mistreating them. So uh, he, he did very little that was right as far as they were concerned. And probably the most famous thing to come out of this episode is, is Magna Carta, which probably most people have heard of. Um, did he actually want to sign this? And and did it do anything to improve his reputation once he had? Um, not immediately, no. His reputation for Magna Carta as a good thing comes much later. Mm. At the time, he didn't want to uh, seal it and or, or anything having to do with it. He uh, was... There's accounts of him going back and gnawing at the rushes and, you know, on the floor <laughs> because he's so enraged by it. Um, but everybody everybody at the time really expected it to be a stopgap measure, just mm. as a kind of a, a, a momentary truce. Uh, everyone expected King John to renege on the deal, and he did. Um, he got the Pope to say it was done under duress and that it wasn't, it wasn't valid. Yeah. So it was a very short-term measure. Longer term, though, it has much, much stronger effect. Um, it was only lasted a few weeks when it signed in June 1215, but actually it was uh, reintroduced then in Bristol uh, in November 1216, and from then it's been fairly continuous. It's been reissued in various forms, mm. 
but um, certain aspects of it have been dropped out. The most famous one being of the first Magna Carta was the last clause, the security clause, which says the 25 men of the realm should oversee what the king was doing mm. and be the judge of what he was doing. So John became a bit like an executive officer. Yeah. And, uh, and it was the barons pulling the string. That one was dropped. Um, <laughs> but it, it helped John in the short term. The reissue of it uh, in Bristol in 1216 was more successful because then by that time John had just died in October. Right. And then so people felt much reassured that John was gone. We have Magna Carta. So it, and it helped the royalists to uh, regain their in, uh, initiative in some ways. So I, I guess that uh, reaction to him sort of going back on his word um, after Magna Carta didn't go down too well with the barons. No, no, and, and they weren't expecting him. They knew John, so mm. it was just a, a momentary pause to take breath. You yeah. Know, uh, to um, John was a problem. It wasn't really Magna Carta wasn't going to solve it. Getting rid of John wouldn't okay. solve it. And, and how did Prince Louis of France come to be involved in what was essentially an English conflict between King John and, and the barons? Well, uh, the barons needed outside help. John had um, the majority of the castles, you know, royal castles, which were strong mm. in, in England. Uh, and because they had state finances being poured into them, they were the bigger ones of fortifications. So they had nearly as many, three times as many castles as the barons did, and stronger castles. So they needed outside help, and mm. also a figurehead of stature. So Prince Louis uh, was asked, would you like to become King of England? And he said, yes, please. Uh, so he came over with a force of 1,200 knights, which is enormous, 700, 800 ships. Uh, and uh, at one point, over half the baron, barons in England paid homage to Prince Louis as King Louis of England. Um, but they needed his support against John. And, and King Alexander of Scotland um, famously came down to play homage to, um, to Louis. Why do you think he wasn't an option to, to come and take the throne? Uh, he was considered, that's a good question, he, he was considered by mm. some to be an option, especially some of the barons up north who had yeah. close family ties with Alexander. Uh, when he was very young, he is still a teenager, but France was just so powerful. Yeah. Uh, it really was so powerful. And, and Louis was going to be the king of France as well at one point. So it was just the, the, the bigger muscle, basically. Mm. Um, John died in 1216 of dysentery. Um, what impact did that have on Louis's um, attempts to take the English throne? Well, he, Louis lost his greatest asset when John died uh, because John was a divisive figure. And so with John gone and Magna Carta reissued, loads of uh, barons thought that it's safe to go back to the royalist cause. The new king of England was a nine-year-old boy, Henry III. Mm. Uh, no blame could be attached to him. Uh, they, they, their positions and influence could be reintroduced within with the new realm, because John, they were so placably, implacably, sorry, opposed to John mm. that he, um, there's going to be no leeway. But with Henry the Third, it's a clean slate almost. So that really did change the situation. Although, at the end of the day, it was military force that compelled Louis to withdraw at the Battle of Lincoln in May 1217 when the, the French and the barons had a very heavy defeat and then that really pushed everyone back over, or well, most people back over to, to the royalists. So Louis wasn't prepared to accept that um, Henry III was, you know, was the new no, king that John had gone? He had invested so much by this time. I mean, he, he was in England for best part of 18 months, a year and okay. a half. Uh, the barons had been holding London since May 1215, so, so London was held for over two years. Yeah. So they weren't in a weak position by any means. Um, they, had, they had a lot to offer in terms of strength and political force. So uh, 
Louis wasn't prepared to just let it go so easy when he saw there's still an opportunity. I know lots of historians don't like answering these sorts of questions, but what do you think would have happened if John hadn't died when he did? Um, do you think that he could have defended the throne from the French? No, not no. I don't think so. Um, because as I said earlier, John was part of the problem. Mm. Um, the longer John went on, he, he didn't show any signs at the end of being any better than he was at the beginning. He he refused to take firm military actions. As I said, London was in the French and rebels' hands for over two years. Mm. For that time, John would go ravaging around the country, burning places, you know, afflict, taking the war to his own people and making everybody suffer. But if he had grasped the, the, the thorn of London and got rid of London straight away, then that would have been headquarters gone for the French and the invasion was likely to have come to, a, to an end. So he, he didn't have the military commitment to, to defeat the French. Uh, and it's likely Louis' position would have stayed strong with more people going over to him. So it's hard to know what would have happened. Mm. Um, maybe the best option for John would have been a divided continuation of a divided country with him uh, in power in the north and the west and Louis in power on the richest third of the country. So essentially it could have been a second Norman conquest. Uh, it, it, absolutely. It was very close to it. Mm. It really was at, at some point. Um, as I said, uh, over half the barons supported Louis at one point. What about the sort of the common people? What do we know anything about them? How they saw it? Um, no, uh, we, we don't really have any information. No. They would want to keep their heads down for most of the time. But the people in London were generally pro, pro rebel, pro baron. Um, elsewhere, they were likely to be the victims. But there is an interesting case of when the French were defeated at the Battle of Lincoln, they made a retreat back to London, to the safe hold of London. Yeah. And on the way back, ordinary peasants and people attacked them and killed them. Um, now, that may have been revenge for what had happened earlier, but also to try and plunder their goods, just as the, the French and the barons had plundered the goods off the people. So yeah. it's probably trying to get some, some money back. People were encouraged to fight, though, for their country. Um, so there's a patriotic element here, which, again, historians don't tend to always see as being so, an, a phenomenon in the early 13th century, but there are definitely appeals to protect England, protect your land and your loved ones from the foreigner. Mm. So uh, they were motivated to fight to defend the country. I mean, it doesn't really sound like John had a lot going for him, really, yeah. um, in terms of being a king. But was he really as bad as, as he's, made, he's made out to be? Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, he was always deemed a bad king until just after World War Two. Then there's a reaction against military history and the like, uh, understandably, and more interest taken in bureaucratic records. And John was a great bookkeeper. Mm. Uh, so people, historians started thinking, well, he looks after the records well, it shows firm government, close eye on government. Um, but, you know, a king was meant to be more than a bookkeeper. He had, mm. he had to rule his people, he had to defend his people. Yeah. Um, and the ultimate, the ultimate sign of failure is that when he died... You know, a third of his country was occupied by a foreign force, yeah. and he and he was outside of London. So he failed in the most uh, basic objective of king to, to defend to defend your people. Um, but there there is attempts. There are attempts to make him sound like he wasn't that bad. But the fact that he was at home looking after the books was a sign of failure because he should have been in France. Yeah. And, but he lost to France. That forced him to come home. He he was a stay at home king. Yeah. Uh, and and how did his contemporaries view him? I mean, famously, there's there's um. There are kind of records from when when he died. People kind of almost celebrated the mm -hmm. fact that he'd gone. 
Was that the case the whole time with yeah, everybody? They didn't worry about speaking ill of the dead. No. No, uh, absolutely not. They're, you know, sinking into hell and befouling hell. Yeah. You know, that's what John was up to. Um, he had a bad press from, from early on. Uh, even before he was king, he had a reputation for treachery um, and changing sides. He had rebelled against the father. He, when Richard was in prison, he tried to take over the country. So he had a poor reputation even before he became king. Mm. But what's telling and what people miss is a couple of things. One is that they say that the chroniclers don't like him because they're monks and John had the interdict of the church and broke away from the church and was excommunicated. Um, but some of these monks were actually very well informed and had patrons who were very close to the centre of things. So the one that's overlooked. Um, but secondly, uh, what is often missed is that many of the sources which were written from John's side, from people involved in John's side, actually say he was a bad man and a bad king. And that's right. often overlooked. Yeah. So you don't, get many, you don't get many people supporting and praising him, even from his own side. They, you know, they say he simply had too many bad qualities. And we've mentioned that this, this could have feasibly been a second Norman conquest. Why do people remember 1066 and, and not 1215? Why do people sort of overlook this, this period? Well, it, it, it still amazes me um, that it's overlooked. I, mean, I remember being an undergraduate and studying this period and then there's two or three lines in our 400 page book saying oh the french invaded england then got kicked out um i think there are two main reasons um one is that it comes at the end of john's reign so magna carta takes all the focus Mm. so magna carta gets all the attention um and then john dies and that's forgotten about and the other thing is it's because it falls in between two reigns it it comes with the to the end of John's reign and then starts at the new reign, but the new reign is also a minority. So Henry III is king in name, but not in practice. Right. So you don't have a forceful, strong character taken over. That was Sean McGlynn, lecturer in history for the Open University and the University of Plymouth at Strode College. Sean's book, Blood Cries Afar, The Forgotten Invasion of England, 1216, is published by the History Press. And Sean also wrote a piece about King John for our May issue, which is still available as a back issue, as well as on the iPad and some other digital formats. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Before our next interview, I'd like to quickly mention that tickets are now on sale for our History Weekend Festival. It's taking place in the historic Wiltshire town of Malmesbury from the 25th to the 27th of October and will include talks from some of Britain's leading historians, including Max Hastings, Michael Wood, Dan Snow, Susanna Lipscomb, Dominic Sandbrook and Kate Williams. For the full lineup and for ticket information, please visit historyweekend.com. Professor Arna Westard is the author of the sixth edition of The Penguin History of the World, which builds on the work of J.M. Roberts to cover topics from ancient civilizations to 21st century economic problems. Professor Westad spoke to our books editor, Matt Elton, about the challenges of writing whole world history, 
and what he thinks it can tell us about the course of human civilization. So how did you get involved with the project to write a history of the world? I first read uh, John Roberts's uh, History of the World when I was a teenager. I grew up in a small town on the on the west coast of Norway and it was one of those books that really influenced me in the sense that I started thinking seriously about studying history and then later on actually becoming an historian, someone who worked on on researching and writing history. So this is a book that had a lot of significance to me in 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 many different ways. And then when I was offered by Penguin many years later to have a first crack at this after John died in, in, in 2003, uh, it was something I simply couldn't turn down. Uh, so we did it for the, for the fifth edition with, uh, based on John's notes and did a, an, an updated version, mainly working on the latter parts of the manuscript. And then for this edition, we then decided to do a complete overhaul to present it as a as a new world history, actually part of the text are still uh, similar to what uh, John Roberts wrote when he first published in 1976. But this is this is a very new take on many of the core questions that relate to world history. So it, it's been it's been a great pleasure working with this. It's been it's been absolutely fantastic, and it's something I enjoyed tremendously. So how do you go about choosing what makes it into a book with such a broad focus? Well, that's the difficulty. I mean, you have to start, of course, in this case, with the text that already exists, the text that is there, which has been tremendously successful, of course. It's been uh, almost certainly the most read history of the world for the, for the past generation. So you have to start with that. And then you have to think about how have our views of history in a broader sense changed in the, in the last generation, last 40 years. So you have to decide which parts of the work that you really want to look at to begin with in terms of in terms of revision and i kept the basic structure in in place but of course our knowledge has expanded enormously and the discussions the debates about history have also expanded enormously during that time so for instance i decided to look at much of uh, prehistory and uh, early human history again uh, in light of what we know today. I wanted to have more in there about um, interconnectivity of various sorts between various groups of people, between various civilizations and, 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 and countries. Uh, more about migration. I wanted to do more on um, the history of, of women, the history of, of young people, where we have gained an enormous amount of knowledge over the past generation. So these are these were the kinds of ideas that I went to the writing with. But then, of course, you have to do a great deal of reading and a great deal of research in order to flesh this out, in order to figure out, you know, what is there that is new? What is there that we really need to focus in on the discussion of today? Okay, so which sources did you use to find out what to include then? What I did, I did three things to begin with. I I read quite a number of overviews that are available for different parts of, of human history, recently published by, by other historians to get a sense of what the key issues and the key debates are. So that, that's the starting point. You know, for a, for a history of this kind, you don't really go back to the archives or anything like that. You, you, you simply can't. But you have to look at what is being published by, by others and what is reasonably up to date both in terms of what actually goes into it, in terms of information, but more importantly to me, what the key debates are uh, among historians, and particularly historians who write for a, for, a, for a broader audience. So that was the first, the first point. And then 
I started looking at those fields that really needed to be extended, uh, some of which I mentioned already. But I also wanted to do, for instance, more on, on non-European history. John, after all, was first and foremost an historian of Europe, and it, it's very clear that his history of the world is influenced by that. I'm an historian of China, primarily, in terms of my, my own um, orientation and, 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 and starting point. So I wanted to cover that a bit more in depth. I wanted to cover Southeast Asian, South Asian history, Middle Eastern history. So I had to find a framework in which to fit that in with the overall structure of the, of the book. And then finally what I had to do is to seek some form of balance. You know, I mean, I wanted to make sure that the reader was able to follow these various developments, both when they were separate in the early part of human history and as they became increasingly interconnected. So you have to develop a number of themes that you wanted to work on that, that run through maybe particularly the, the, the last two and a half thousand years or so of the, of the human experience and all the way up to today. And I think in order to do that, you, you have to some extent to start with what are the key issues for our world today? What is it that has made us develop into the kind of, 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 of human race that we are today? So you have to have some priorities with regard to that. And, and those priorities are in many, many cases unabashedly presentist. They are about how our world today has been created. That's really interesting. Thank you. Something that did strike me was that the idea of nation has survived when things like class and religion have survived less well. Um, why do you think that is? I think in overall terms, we are still in a period of history in which different kinds of concepts of nation are, are very, very important. I think the two main reasons for that. I mean, the first one is the takeover of various forms of European nationalism, concepts of, of nationalism in various parts of the world, which went through the decolonization period. Now, this has always been contentious. It's always been problematic. It is quite clear that the ideas of, of a nation, and particularly the idea of a nation state, that developed in Europe from the early 19th century or late 17th century on, doesn't really fit much of the historical situation that we are, we are in today. It doesn't even fit it for Europe, as we know, in terms of the many attempts at, at integration that have been going on, particularly over the, last, over the last two generations. But it's a very forceful idea. It's the idea about the collective, about serving the greater good for a defined uh, group of people that you set up as a, as a nation. But one always has to be aware that those definitions are very contentious. They are, they are, they are very much discussed and very much debated. So I think... We are still within a period where the nation plays an enormously important role as a concept for a lot of people in various places around the world. But there are competing concepts as well, and some of those have become stronger, of course, over the past generation. That's something that I was going to touch on. I mean, how do you think the study of history has changed recently, and what do you think the factors are that have caused that change? I think for many reasons. I mean... One of the most important reasons is that, you know, we've simply got access to a lot more source material today about various groups of people and various kinds of history than what we've had before. I mean, people started looking for these in during parts of the 20th century. For instance, we know a great deal more uh, about the history of women than, than what we used to do. And that has a lot to do, of course, with what has happened to the status of women overall in the 20th century. 
uh, and up to today that uh, historians have been looking for uh, this immense change that has meant for the first time in most societies the full participation of women in, in, in society and politics. So, so people have been, have been looking for that and looking for the, for the historical origins of that. And then secondly, I think it is important to try to think about the development of the concept of world history. The emphasis on different kinds of connectedness, the emphasis on different kinds of comparative history that have developed, particularly over the last generation or so, been tremendously important, at least to me, in, in, in writing this book, that you try to understand how different aspects of human history connect, how they, uh, how they are dealt with. Uh, a sound degree of skepticism about the primacy that was generally given to the state and the genesis of the state, the emphasis on different parts of what I guess today we would call civil society in various forms. And maybe first and foremost this overall emphasis that I, I hope you will find in this book when, when, you, when you read it on different kinds of development, that there isn't one sort of logical given form of economic or social or, or political development, but there have been very many different alternatives that have developed in different ways throughout human history. I think th those are the main uh, kinds of development that we have seen uh, over the past generation or so in terms of how historians work. Are there any areas in which you disagreed with John Roberts? Well, there are a few. I mean, I've already mentioned that um, John was primarily an historian of Europe, though he did do a fantastic job uh, for when he wrote this book in picking up what was new in non-European history as well. I think if there is one main aspect of this that I would underline, besides that difference in orientation between where we are coming from as, as historians, it would probably be John's sense that much of the what he would call the rise of the West, the predomination of uh, Europe and particularly European forms of thinking and economic practices, have very deep roots going back to at least late antiquity. Um, I'm not so sure about that. I see many of the changes that came to uh, set off the direction of European predominance really belong in the middle part of the last millennium, sort of the 15th, 16th, even early 17th centuries, uh, simply because the differences in terms of ability to control large uh, amounts of territory, differences in terms of economy and differences in terms of technology weren't really all that great, for instance, if you compare Europe and China before then. So I see a bit more contingency, I see a bit more... Um, sort of rapid development of, of differences and divergences than what, what John sees. That said, it is also interesting to note that in his own work, he was always very open in terms of understanding these many-ended, you know, very open kinds of development uh, that took place in human history. He was never teleological. I mean, never believed that one set of developments could only have one outcome. Uh, and that is something that we most definitely agree on, something that I think makes this, in its first version, such a great book. Just out of interest, did you catch Andrew Marr's recent BBC series on the history of the world? Yeah, I watched some of it. I, I didn't, unfortunately, get to watch all of it, but I watched some of the programmes. What did you think of it? I think it is very good. I mean, for someone who knows how difficult it is to do a history of the world now after having completed this 
this uh, this revised uh, version of of uh, Penguin's history of the world. I think he did he did quite a good job of it. I mean, there are there are different ways in which to present this, and, and the most important thing I think of all for anyone who is writing world history is to be able to engage a large audience. And he was certainly able to do that. I mean, we would disagree on a few things. We would disagree, for instance, again, on how did European um, predomination came into being. Uh, I would be very uncertain, for instance, about some of the things that he had to say about China and South Asia in the broader development of human history. I think some aspects of what I call the, the great conveyor belt of the last 2,000 years, central um, Eurasia, um, some of that was left out, but overall, I think I think this was a this was a job pretty well done and 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 extremely well presented. We've touched there on uh, China quite a bit. The shift towards the Eastern Hemisphere that we're seeing happening at the moment, particularly after the global financial crisis, is that something that you see continuing? Yes, I mean I think uh, the global financial crisis is just a symptom of underlying changes that have been going on for quite some time. It doesn't just have to do with China. It has to do with creating a more multipolar world, a world that is more complex, more composite. The, it's very useful to do a history of the world in order to reflect on this because you're then reminded uh, of what short a period the North American European predominance really is in terms of world history as a whole. It's a relatively brief period of time where uh, productivity... Uh, productive capacity, uh, technology, all of this seemed for a much longer time to prioritize Asia over Europe. Not difficult to understand when you think about where the overall balance of the world's population has been over the last two, two millennia. So I think we're sort of shifting back there now in a sense, not just to Asia, although Asia is going to be at the center of this, I think, but also, also onto a much more a complex world, a much more composite world than what we have seen during the period of, of European imperial control and the Cold War period that followed that. Are there any themes that you think recur across the book? Yes, I think there are a few. I mean, one of them is, of course, the tremendous human capacity for change. I, one of the things that really strikes you when you work on, on human prehistory, for instance, is how certain inventions how certain social formations came to predominate not just in one area, but relatively rapidly, when you think about it in, in historical time, in, in other areas as well. The, the ability to embrace change, to make it part of who we are, I think that's something that you find throughout, throughout all historical epochs. Another thing is people's willingness and interest in, in traveling, in moving about. And this is something that we found a great deal more on uh, over the past uh, half generation or so. Think, for instance, about how our understanding now of um, the compositeness of, of, of uh, human genetics, of human DNA, has changed over the past, well, just past decade or so. We know much more about where people come from and how they've interacted over time. And that includes a great deal of movement, of, of migration, over very long distances, starting way back in prehistory and lasting up to our, our own time. And then finally, the preoccupation with ideas, with trying to put things together in a, in a broad sense of trying to make sense of, to put it in a sort of 
almost semi-religious sense. What you know, what we are doing here, what what is the the the, the origin? What is the original aspect of um, of uh, understanding the the human position in the world, or perhaps in the universe? That's something that's always been with us. Uh, it's something that's not going to go away anytime soon. And finally, what impressions about history and I guess human nature do you hope that people come away from the book with? I first and foremost hope that reading a book like this, they would be interested in, in reading more, in finding out more about the various epochs in human history. Because a one-volume history of the world, however comprehensive it is, and this one is, for a one-volume history, pretty comprehensive, um, can never do justice to the complexities and the intricacies of, of human history. So I hope it will be a starting point, for, particularly for young people, to read more about history in, in, in the broad sense for the various time periods that we try to cover. I also hope that it will be an instrument for people to think about history more critically than what we generally do, to think about where our own world today is coming from, to think about alternative outcomes, about alternative endings, to think about, you know, our own ancestors, uh, uh, what they had to deal with, what kind of choices that they had to make in a, in a very concrete manner in, in most cases. That's the kind of history that I hope this will be. That was Professor Arna Westad. The Penguin History of the World, 6th edition, is out now, published by Alan Lane. And that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we may well read out some of your messages in future episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter at History Extra and you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Next time, we'll be heading off to London to meet some of the Horrible Histories gang, so do join us for that. The History Extra Weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. 